0: Heavenly Father, we praise You for who You are. We thank You for our hope in Christ. Thank You for the privilege we have of prayer. We come before You well aware. We have egregious weaknesses. We have sin that separates us from You. Sin that draws our heart, our affections away from You. Lord, I want to thank you this morning for every household represented here among us. Thank you for all that you are doing to reveal yourself in each and every one. I pray that you would continue to prepare and work in all of our hearts that we might be used by you. May we truly be tools through which you advance your kingdom. Among us are incredible challenges and needs this morning. Lord, we know that you are more than sufficient for each and every one. We're grateful to know that that you know them intimately, perfectly. Father, among us this morning, there are people who are dealing with illness, with health problems. We pray that you would touch them and encourage them. You show them how to rest in you, even when the body doesn't want to cooperate. Lord, we... Pray for those who are dealing with doubts and fears about life's complexities this morning. Things that are just hard that we face each and every day. Give them peace. Give them comfort to know that you are always faithful. That you're always able to sustain us. Lord, many are dealing with relationship tensions and challenges. There are more than 8 billion of us on this planet, and we tend to live in close proximity to one another, and that always creates opportunities for conflict and misunderstanding and dislike. So we pray for Your wisdom. We pray for Your strength. We pray for Your Spirit to enable us, Lord, uh, to move beyond those hindrances to lean into you and your strength, and to love as you love. Magnify your love and unity among us and in our hearts and minds. We praise you and thank you for your word, how wonderful and sufficient it is for all things in our lives. Give us a hunger, a thirst to hear you speak to us today. Enable us to believe you and obey you, Glorify Yourself among us, we pray, that You would fill us with Your Spirit and that You would indeed make Milton Community Church a city of light for our community. And we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Well, today we're back in Ephesians, as you have noticed by now. And we're immediately confronted with hot-button issues, issues that we hear about each and every day. This text is inundated with buzzwords that cause a variety of reactions among human beings, even among Christ followers. The Bible speaks to them clearly, so we're not left in the dark to wonder what they mean or how we should function in their context. Paul addresses marriage, he addresses wives, he addresses husbands, he addresses love, and yes, even submission. That great, that great thought and doctrine that we all uh, recoil from, right? Because we know the response that we're going to get when it's mentioned. Many traditional conservative Christians are likely to feel their blood pressure rise somewhat with some of these topics, with some of these subjects. These issues are so hot in our world that we have no need to explore the ramifications here this morning. You see that played out each and every day before your eyes. Since the Supreme Court arrogantly and brazenly tossed out thousands of years of precedent regarding marriage in 2015, these issues have just flooded, have flooded society. And as a result, the world has become a most confusing and contentious place. In Scandinavia, gay marriage was first adopted back in the early 1990s. So we have almost three decades to evaluate the impact of that decision. And what has been discovered is that fewer and fewer people, couples, are getting married. They may choose or opt to cohabitate. But There are many implications that we don't have the expertise nor time to explore my point that i want you to understand this morning is that marriage has been under attack ever since it began in the garden of Eden. ever since sin confronted human beings since adam and eve sinned against god in the garden of eden husbands and wives have been attempting to build healthy marriages but doing so on a battlefield Marriage was intended to be a beautiful and fruitful garden, but instead it's become a battle zone filled with endless conflict and numerous challenges, casualties. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 describes for us a clear and simple portrait of marriage as designed by God. This passage focuses primarily on two verbs and a spiritual truth that are incredibly important in the context of Marriage. So as we study this text this morning, it's my hope and prayer that we'll accomplish basically three things. Hopefully there will be more, but at least three things we can accomplish. One, that we will provide healthy marriage expectations for those who are yet single, currently single, but hope to be married someday. And maybe a better understanding among them for those that are married. Secondly, I would hope that we will equip those who are married to make their marriages healthier and thirdly that we can encourage the church to understand that marriage is a gift from God and a portrait of the gospel so this text emphasizes as I said two verbs and an important spiritual truth the first verb is probably the most controversial So we'll get it out of the way to begin with, right? It's even demonized in our society today. Healthy marriages, first of all, redeem and embrace biblical submission. Biblical submission. Now, don't close your ears. Keep them open and listen to what God describes, how He describes, how He sees this idea of submission. Submission is controversial for a number of reasons. We lack understanding, first of all, about what biblical submission means. We assign predispositions based upon our experience in the culture. So we learn, we gain information from those that are outside the church, and that's how we form our understandings. But how does culture get submission wrong? Well, there are many ways, but let's talk about two or three here. First, people believe that submission is inequality. They believe that submission is advancing the idea that men and women or people are unequal to one another, that one has greater intellect or worth or power than another. That's simply not what the Bible is inferring. Secondly, people believe submission justifies male dominance and even abuse of females. Again, nothing could be further from the truth. And thirdly, people believe identity and destiny is a social construct in this world we live in today. And defining roles is oppressive and archaic. Anything leading into this pattern is considered to be bad and even unfair. Another buzzword. Biblical submission never, ever condones or encourages such harmful attitudes. Biblical submission does not deny these abuses exist and that there are problems. But distortions in human relationships have been a problem since Eden, and they will continue to be so. For, for instance, Adam abdicated his role as leader, spiritual leader of his family. This was assigned to him by God. This was given to him by God, and he abdicated that. He was right there the day that Eve listened to the arguments of the enemy and sinned against God. Eve usurped a role that was not assigned to her. She engaged in something that she had not been prepared by God to do. Sin's curse, its fallenness, continues to mar and distort roles, attitudes, and actions. Paul says here in this text, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And in our culture today, many will try to rewrite that and say it means something different. Well, it does mean something different than how we understand it in our culture. Again, in Colossians 3.18, he uses almost the exact same phrase. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So this has to do with the right ordering of the marriage relationship. Typically, in a Roman household, at that day, the term obey would have been used. So Paul is pushing back on that idea somewhat he uses submit men have a God-given leadership role in the family and the idea is for wives to come alongside them align themselves with them and respect this design do not allow or follow cultural patterns is what he's saying but live in a way that's fitting to the Lord live according to the Lord's prescription. You call yourselves believers, you want to follow Christ, this is one of the things that he encourages us to do, particularly in that most important relationship between husband and wife. It's not a matter of superiority or inferiority. Both are equal under God. There are two important terms to consider. Headship and submission. So what do they mean? What do we mean when we're talking about headship in the home because the man is compared to Christ who is the head of the church well headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership protection and provision in the home submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts Now, these roles and distinctions do not preclude mutual honor and respect and discussion. This does not mean that the husband unilaterally makes all the decisions and doesn't include the wife in that decision-making process. That's one of the misunderstandings. But still, it is the husband's God-given responsibility ultimately to lead the family, and he will be held accountable for it. The wife has responsibility to align with and to support this role. Her input and influence should be an integral part of his leadership. In other words, there should be plenty of room for discussion, even debate about issues or decisions affecting the family. Ultimately, though, she is accountable to God to help her husband as he leads. So that's our first verb, submission. There's much more we could unpack, but I'm not sure that it serves us well this morning. You can dive into that and investigate it yourself. I'd be glad to help you with that anytime. any time. But we have a second verb here in the text that has a critical partnership with submit. Healthy marriages will also understand and practice true love. True love. We've talked a good bit about love in recent weeks. We learn that we cannot claim to love God if we do not love others. This is especially true in the closest of relationships. 1 Corinthians 13 describes genuine love in this manner. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. It would do us all well to focus and meditate upon how God has defined love. Paul elevates the expectation of love here in Ephesians 5. Husbands... Love your wives. None of us would quibble with that. But then he qualifies it. He says, as Christ has loved the church. And in case you've forgotten, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, love means that you put yourself in the place of being sacrificial for the benefit, for the glory of your own wife, to honor her, that she might fulfill her purpose in Christ. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now it's noteworthy, ladies, that this section is much longer than the section assigned to you. This goes into much more detail. I think this indicates the importance it has in the apostles' intent. Let's think about these qualifiers that he gives us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. As Christ loves the church. He paid the ultimate cost by laying down his life to redeem us, to purchase us for himself. The elect were in bondage to sin and destined for God's judgment. Christ condescended, stepped down from the throne, came down to live among us, took on flesh, that He might live a perfect life, fulfill God's commandments, and lay down His life as a substitutionary sacrifice to reclaim us. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Husbands, husbands, Love your wives as you love your own flesh. Now, none of us wants to admit that we love our own flesh, do we? That would be unbecoming. I don't love my own flesh. You know, I understand the failures and the flaws uh, uh, with my flesh. But the truth of the matter is, we do love our flesh immensely. Uh, We take time to nourish these bodies, right? I'm living proof of that. I take time and put energy and spend my money to nourish this flesh. Knowing that it's deteriorating, knowing that its destiny is a grave and returning to the soil, and yet I continue to nourish it. We take time to rest these bodies. We relax. You know, here in Western society today, we're experts on relaxation. We kind of have a tension there, right? We run we run the race hard and we relax hard. But we relax and we rest these bodies. We we talk about sleep. Some of you are not sleeping well. You reach an age where your body doesn't rest well anymore. We will stop at nothing. We go visit the doctor and say I'm not resting well. I need some help in how to rest. We rest these bodies. We take and make time to care for these bodies. We go to the doctor. We go to the dentist. We go to the gymnasium. We get out and take uh, a stroll through the neighborhood. All these things designed to help the body. We take time to pleasure these bodies. We engage in entertainment. We watch those games and become fans to get the adrenaline pumping. We enjoy certain aspects of these kinds of activities in our lives. They bring some kind of pleasure to our flesh. If your flesh is being threatened, you go to great lengths to protect it, do you not? If you felt like someone was getting ready to attack you with harmful intent, you would do just about anything to keep that from happening your flesh is ailing or hurting you go to great lengths to comfort it if your flesh is weary and exhausted you're compelled to find that rest and that sleep this is the mindset for husbands and how they should care for their wives substitute wife for flesh can i turn that thinking around and think you know the things that i would do for myself to care for myself to express concern for myself my wife should be receiving that as a priority in our relationship. This sets the standard for sacrificial care and attention. Submission is not difficult when the husband loves in this way. In talking with uh, ladies through the years, marital counseling, whatever it may be, I have discovered not one lady who would say, you know what, I'd have a hard time submitting myself to a man who cared for me that way. No, they all say, look, if I get that kind of care, why wouldn't I submit to that person? And as you submit, ladies, you also encourage him in his husbandly responsibilities, his leadership responsibilities. And you'll find that he becomes much more closer to the man that you desire and want in your relationship. Wives and husbands apply these two verbs in this way. They will enjoy a healthy marriage and home. Not perfect. Not perfect. But better. Not perfect yet. But moving toward perfection. But it will be a resilient marriage. It will be a saturated marriage. Saturated with forgiveness and kindness. There will be no... There will be respect and honor. There will be genuine care and selflessness. So we have these two verbs, submit and love. They go together, they travel together, they encourage one another in our lives. And this is our imperative from this passage. And then he gives us a truth, a spiritual truth that we must not miss. And that is that marriage portrays the gospel. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. A man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. We see this depicted over and over. Many of us have experienced it. I was once dependent upon my parents. I was once dependent upon them emotionally, practically, physically. Everything you, My whole life depended upon these two people who brought me into this world and raised me. But there came a time where I left that relationship. I left and separated from them, and I took Karen as a wife. And we became, to begin with, in theory, one flesh. And over the last, I'll say many years, I won't tell you how many exactly, but over all these years, you know what? God has been making this practical commitment and vow toward being one flesh become a reality in our lives we've grown together into one flesh it truly is a mystery how god does this we covenanted to be a flesh and began this journey and god has made it come to pass How two people begin as separate beings and become one, Paul says, is a mystery, a profound mystery, but this mystery points to Christ and His church. God gave us marriage that we might multiply and fill the earth with worshipers, that we might raise our children up to know the Lord and to worship Him in spirit and in truth. This is every parent's first responsibility. Not to see your child gets properly educated, not to see they get all of the other things that we shower upon them, not to see that they come proficient in all these different things. Your first responsibility is to raise them up in the teaching, the admonition of God's Word, and to focus their attention on God, that they might come into relationship with Him and worship Him with all that they are. But marriage also depicts the gospel. Christ entered the world to seek and to save that which was lost. We were from Adam, fallen, broken, hopeless, trapped in sin, with no recourse, no ability to escape that sin. Christ has torn down the walls of separation and has redeemed His elect from sin, from death, from hell. And He has taken His elect as a husband takes a bride. We are set free from Adam's race and positioned in Christ. We are covenanted with Him. And we are now growing. We are growing into one flesh with Him, in Him. Growing up, maturing in our position in Him. It's a mystery, and yet it is becoming evident. The marriage is a glorious gift from God. The joy of oneness that marriage offers a man and a woman is incredible. And the opportunity to multiply and raise up worshipers for God, what what a gift. The journey with all of its ups and downs that make us one is incomprehensible. In fact, if God had laid it out for us in the very beginning, we probably would have decommitted. Said, I'm not up for that. I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can get there. But together... In Him, He's brought us this far. He's producing what He wants to produce, often in spite of our weakness and our human frailty. Marriage is a graphic portrait of the gospel. That's the primary reason that relentless efforts are are at work in our society, in our world today, to undo, to attack marriage. Marriage. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Why why are so many people so intent on destroying the family and marriage? I'm telling you, it's because it is a spiritual matter. It is a spiritual matter. And our, our relationships in the home are under incredible attack. And so much of the world has joined arms in encouraging it and participating in it. Maybe not thinking through carefully what are the implications. A healthy biblical marriage proclaims the goodness and gospel of God. And when marriage is not healthy, when it's not biblical, it proclaims the weakness of man. The enemy is seeking to pervert it, to ruin the gospel portrait it offers. Marriage is important for these practical reasons as God's good gift to us. Marriage is important for proclaiming the gospel in this dark world. This is reason enough for us to work and pray to have biblical marriages, is it not? It's necessary for us to resist the world's attacks on Christian marriage. To pray fervently. We've only skimmed the surface this morning. We could spend hours, we could spend days, even weeks on this text. I hope you see the gospel in Christian marriage as it's presented here. But it also directs our attention to the Lord's table. The bread is emblematic of Christ's body, suffering in our place, took on sin that He might exhaust God's judgment for us as sinners. The wine, the juice is emblematic of Christ's blood shed for us. Life is in the blood, and when the blood is spilled out, the life is exhausted. He gave His life so that we might live. At the Lord's table, we remember, we meditate, we rejoice over these truths. We remember the salvation He purchased for His elect. We remember the union that is ours as His redeemed. We remember that He is going to return and claim those who are His for all of eternity. Scripture clearly tells us who should participate in the Lord's supper? Who's it for? It's for those who believe the gospel and repent of their sin. It's not an empty ritual. It's a sacred. It's a sacred engagement. It's a sacred ordinance that God has given us for those who know him, those who have been born again and belong to him. It's for those who are walking in healthy fellowship with Christ. They do not guard or love their sin. They are eager to have God examine their lives and to remove sin. Beliefs, habits, attitudes that interfere with their daily walk with Him are to be surrendered. He is Savior, He is Redeemer, and He expects also to be Lord. How do we come to the table? We come humbly. We come in unity with Christ. We come in unity with one another. Sin puts us at odds with God. Sin puts us at odds with one another. We come to the table confessing our sin, repenting of all sin. We put those sins under the blood of Christ and we make restitution where it's necessary. We're warned not to partake of the Lord's Supper in a careless fashion. We're warned not to come to the table with sin having planted itself in our lives and us guarding and protecting against it. It's an unworthy manner, he says, and it's a perilous position to be in. So how do we examine ourselves? How do we prepare ourselves to come to the table? Through prayer. Through prayer, by simply saying, Father, reveal to me and convict me of the sin that is has hold and sway in my life. The things that would hinder me from coming to your table. Bring that to my attention. Convict me of it. May I agree with your assessment. Give me a heart that doesn't do this begrudgingly or try to be secretive about it, but a way that that says, Lord, I'm broken over this. That this would come between me and you or me and other believers. And we confess that. And we put it under the all-sufficient blood of Christ. There is no sin too great, no sin too small, that cannot be and will not be covered by the blood of Christ. If we simply say, Lord, search me, show me, now forgive me. Indeed, He will. So I want to encourage us this morning to take just a few moments to bow our heads and have that conversation with God. Ask Him to search your heart and what He brings to your attention to confess it and cleanse your heart before we come to the table. Let us do that now. Father, we thank You for loving us. We thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for hope. Lord, all around us in our world, there are people who have no hope today. We pray for them. We pray that, Lord, the Gospel might go forth, that it might go forth not only through your word but in and through our lives as we live each and every day that people will see your hope in us and that it might draw them to you fill our hearts with gratitude and with joy and with harmony as we approach this table cleanse us lord make us brand new before you And we pray that You would be glorified as we obey Your command to remember together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.